Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Did you watch the Super Bowl and catch the Will Ferrell EV commercial? Today we're talking about automaker promises. And stick around after the interview. My colleague, Rebecca Bame, has an accidental vaccination story to tell. During the 2021 Super Bowl commercial break, Automaker General Motors released a new star-studded ad. In case you haven't seen it, actor Will Ferrell declares fake war on Norway for outselling the U.S. in electric vehicles. He goes on an angry, antics-filled drive to Norway, and speaking for GM, he says that soon everyone in the U.S. will be able to drive an EV so we can, quote, crush the losers, end quote. The ad closes with the declaration, We're coming, Norway, 30 new EVs by 2025. While it's great to see more mainstream excitement for electric vehicles, it's also frustrating to hear this from an automaker that is a big reason why we have so few EVs in the U.S. to begin with, because GM spent decades actively opposing clean car standards. So while I want to believe that these ambitious new resolutions represent a change of heart, I hesitate to get my hopes up. Because just like my New Year's resolution, which was the same as last year's and the year before, things could always fall through. So what should we make of GM's promises and where the broader auto industry is headed? To figure it out, I spoke to Dr. Dave Cook, Senior Vehicles Analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's an expert in fuel efficiency technologies, such as EVs, and has spent a lot of time calling out the hypocrisy of automakers like GM that run greenwashing ad campaigns while secretly using their political influence to keep polluting. We talk about why there are so few EVs in the U.S., how we can reduce transportation emissions without them, and what he'd say to people who aren't sure they would even want an EV. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to finally get you on the podcast. Did you watch the Super Bowl? I did not. I did not, actually. This is the first year. Well, I bet you still saw the GM Will Ferrell ad. Uh, Absolutely. Can't escape it. Yeah. So that Norway commercial, I mean, it makes GM sound so cool and, and cutting edge. I mean, they're saying their plan is to only sell electric vehicles by 2035 and be carbon neutral by 2040. That sounds pretty great. Yeah, it's cute. I guess uh, GM doesn't even sell cars in Norway or anywhere else in Europe, so it's sort of funny. But you know, the GM also tried the big Super Bowl ad tack last year, too. They hired LeBron James for the EV Hummer ad. You know, The real problem is that $100,000 electric vehicles aren't going to make a dent in emissions. And That certainly isn't helped when the company pushing them just spent four years weakening the standards that we have just because they make their profits on giant SUVs and pickup trucks. And when it comes to 2035, it's great that they quote unquote aspire to sell an all electric fleet by 2035. But, you know, aspirations are like, you know, someone making the same New Year's resolution five years running. If they were actually committed to selling an all-electric fleet in 2035, you know, we wouldn't be seeing Super Bowl ads for $100,000 vehicles. We'd be seeing them push for regulations that get us to all-electric sales by 2035. 
Yeah, I'm trying to imagine a, a Super Bowl commercial about regulations. That that would be tough. <laughs> hey, I mean, um, I'd I'd have taken a Super Bowl ad for the Chevy Bolt. You know, they have a forty thousand dollar, you know, at least reasonably affordable EV, and I can't tell you the last time I saw an advertisement for it. Is this a typical promise in quotes that all automakers make, and then they just don't live up to them? Yeah, I think it's not uncommon for automakers to talk big, but not follow through. We've seen plenty of announcements over the past five plus years of companies that do recognize that the world recognizes the need to deal with climate change. And that means when it comes to personal vehicles moving to an electric future. And so companies like Volvo and Volkswagen have put out dates by you know, saying, this is the last engine platform we're developing. This is the last date by when we will sell vehicles that are only powered by gasoline. But then at the same time, they work behind the scenes against the regulations that would actually hold them to those commitments. You've studied the history of how automakers have tried to undermine vehicle standards. How does that play into this? I mean, that's sort of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, we've seen six, now seven decades uh, of it, whether it's seatbelts, airbags, you name it. You know, you can look at uh, smog, for example. So first, they fought the evidence that said that automobile emissions were a problem, funding studies that put the blame on other industries. Then when California was putting in place the first ever standards, they said those standards were not possible and would bankrupt the industry. And then when suppliers came along and said, hey, we have the technology, it took smog being a problem in cities like Philadelphia and New York City and Boston before national action finally took hold because automakers, again, funded studies diminishing their role in the problem. The only direction the auto industry seems to know is reverse. And I think you said something interesting that we have the technology available to do a lot of these things, yet they're still resisting. That makes no sense to me. Well, when it comes to electrification, battery costs have come down 89%, I think, over the past decade. At the same time, they are still more expensive to produce today. And you know, auto companies are businesses. They look at their bottom line. And right now, the cheapest way for them to make a buck is to sell high profit margin SUVs and pickups and to sell consumers on the idea that they need a $50,000 pickup, you know, that they need a $70,000 SUV. They have increasingly been marketing new vehicles towards richer, whiter audiences. And the unfortunate thing is that the vast majority of vehicle sales are on the secondary market. And what we've seen is that the auto companies are selling to a narrower slice of the public, and those decisions impact the rest of us for years to come. So how many EVs are currently on the road compared to gas cars? Over the last decade, 
EVs on the road in the U.S. have grown from virtually none to we're now at one and a half million EVs on the road. That is pretty good. We've seen a steady increase in sales um, and we sell about 250 to 300,000 EVs a year right now. Unfortunately, automakers sell 15 to 17 million vehicles total. So, you know, 250 to 300,000 is a very small share of that. And worst of all, automakers have focused those sales of electric vehicles in areas like California that require sales of electric vehicles. So, for example, California, which has the most electric vehicle choices for consumers, EVs represent about 8% of the new vehicle market. But if you take a city in the middle of the country, like Indianapolis or St. Louis, consumers have less than one third the number and types of electric vehicles offered. And that translates to less than a 1% market share because automakers really aren't even trying to sell EVs. That really surprises me, Dave. I think maybe in part because I live on the East Coast in the Boston area and I see a lot of EVs on the road. And I've noticed in the past few years, I've been seeing more and more. So I'm really surprised that the numbers are so low for EV sales across the country. I think I'm yeah. living in, in a bubble here. I, I mean, that's exactly right. You are living in one of the areas of the country that has adopted requirements for electrification, a sales requirement on the automakers. And so like California, Oregon, Massachusetts, New York, those are states that have requirements that automakers sell them. And hey, lo and behold, there's a whole lot more choice for consumers in those areas. So what can we do about this? How do we turn things around? One of the things I think that the Biden administration can do is... I like to break this down between the carrot and the stick. <laughs> so on the carrot side, we need to focus on deploying charging infrastructure. We have a vision for an all-electric future, and we need to build towards that. And that means making sure that no matter where you are in the country, that you have a robust network of public options to charge your vehicle. Not everyone owns their home or has a garage. And so we need to make sure that driving an electric vehicle is convenient to everyone across the country. And that's going to take a serious investment. And importantly, as we make that investment, we need to prioritize the communities most at risk from transportation pollution and ensure that these vehicles are accessible and affordable in those communities. At the same time, you've got to balance all of that investment with the stick, which is they need to hold manufacturers accountable. Manufacturers are comfortable selling gas guzzling SUVs because that's the cheapest way to make a buck. And strong regulations need to be aligned with our climate trajectories. If GM says it can hit zero emissions by 2035, that sounds to me like the Biden administration should be holding them to it with binding emission standards that get us there. So you're talking about infrastructure, that we need a lot more infrastructure. And I know that that's a question that a lot of people are concerned about when they think about whether they would want an electric vehicle. So what would you say to folks that are concerned about infrastructure and that have range anxiety what we've seen is that the important thing for folks is that 
they need to one be able to get their butt in the seat of an EV to understand what it's like to drive them to have a better sense of what it actually means what the difference is between a plug-in hybrid or you know a battery electric vehicle a lot of folks still don't have that experience so that we are in a very low information stage for most people and it's in part why we see the EV market as small as it is. This is a common problem with new technologies where early adopters are wealthier, they are more educated, they are better connected, they can spend more time investigating how does this technology fit into my life. The vast majority of us benefit from that knowledge because eventually it diffuses and the market slowly grows and we start to move towards majority adoption. What we need is to make the experience of moving to an electric vehicle more relatable so that people can see how it fits into their lifestyle. And that, that means that those choices need to be there <laughs> where, it, where it isn't in, in you know, so many parts of the country. But it, it also means that for folks who rent their home or don't have a garage that they where they can install an electric charger or whatever, that they understand that there's a robust infrastructure. So when I need to charge my electric vehicle, I know that I can just go to the charging station. I know what that's going to be like. For most trips, a 300-mile, 250, 300-mile battery is way more than enough. You know, commutes are the biggest part of most people's travel day and you're not driving, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> you don't have a 150 mile commute each way. That sounds like a nightmare. In terms of daily experiences, EVs are can slot into most people's lives, but people then you know think about those trips to grandma and, and that's where the low frequency but visible aspects of our life we think about. And so we're like, we wanna make sure that the vehicle fits in that. And so the, the more that people are exposed to electric vehicles, the more that people see charging stations on the road in the neighborhoods that they drive in, the more that that translates into an option that they can see how it fits in with their lifestyle. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, please take a minute to leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get noticed. And if you're not subscribed, it's super easy and free. Just look us up in any podcast app and click on subscribe. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. You make a really good point about feeling comfortable trying something new. Do you have an electric vehicle? I no longer have a car at all. Good for you. But you've driven electric vehicles. Yes. So what are they like? How is it different when you sit in an electric vehicle for the first time? So the first 
electric vehicle I drove. I think one of the things that astounds you is how quiet it is. You have to sort of do like a quadruple check that like, is this thing on? (laughs) Because there's no audible engine noise. And then the next thing that you notice, maybe not when you're reversing out of the driveway or getting on the road, but at that first stoplight probably is the light goes green and there is a serious amount of torque even in a Nissan Leaf or a Kia Soul electric. I'm not talking a Tesla Model S here. Like even the sort of basic EV, because of the electric motor, it's actually really fun to drive. Like it accelerates, especially off the line, really fast. And the other thing that I enjoy because I'm a a tech nerd, I, I like to geek out on this stuff, is regenerative braking, which people talk about one pedal driving. And what that means is that With an EV, rather than wasting uh, energy to mechanical brake, which then causes heat, the brake pads, as you take your foot off the gas, you can basically recuperate that energy. And it's like the battery works in reverse and it actually, you know, the braking energy charges the battery back up. The driving experience changes to the extent that depending on how much regenerative braking there is, you can basically like just drive with the gas pedal and not really have to like slam on the brakes at all or worry about that because and and the more that you do that the more energy you're recuperating and it's like a a gamification to like make you drive more efficiently it's kind of fun it's more like uh it's like a go-kart but in the best possible way (laughs) so you worked on the lawsuits when the previous administration tried to roll back standards so what is the status of that Yeah, we filed uh, lawsuits, one protecting California's right to set emission standards, and two, pushing back on the bad science that the previous administration tried to use to justify rolling back standards that were saving money. And in terms of the lawsuit protecting California's right to set emission standards, Auto companies made a big deal out of the fact that they were supporting it, but then now we're not once the Biden administration went in. So they stopped supporting it and the Biden administration has put that lawsuit on hold. And that's obviously political maneuver by the auto companies telling the current administration that we're willing to recognize that California's historical leadership on emissions demands that the state be involved in the next round of federal standards. So that's shaping up. Everyone is on board with California setting strong emission standards in theory. But on the second lawsuit, when it comes to rolling back standards that are working to save consumers money, automakers, including GM and Toyota, are actually still supporting the rollback in litigation. They've sided with the previous administration as the lawsuit moves forward. And You know, we, that is still making its way through court. So UCS has done surveys of GM and Toyota customers on their actions around vehicle standards and lawsuits. So what did you learn and what does that say about where the car buying public is compared to the automakers? Yeah, well, I think what we learned when it came to, you know, Toyota's customers, right there, I'm sure we're have a number of Prius-owning listeners. And 
you know, they were sort of shocked to find that Toyota was involved in supporting the uh, rollback of emission standards. And we saw then that if those companies were to change their tune, they saw a huge improvement in the approval from their consumers. So we know that these sort of signals that the auto companies are sending can be dangerous to their bottom line. You know, if they don't make a change, the survey showed that a number of customers of GM and Toyota were now going to factor that into their next vehicle purchase. And on the other hand, when it comes to where the car buying public is on electric vehicles, which is what we are trying to drive these companies towards, consumers love more choice and EVs look really good to them. So, you know, we've done surveys in the past of, are you interested in purchasing an EV? And they look at lower maintenance costs, lower fueling costs, and obviously lower emissions and are like, yeah, that sounds great. Folks in much of the country don't have a direct experience with the vehicles. So they don't have someone trusted to answer questions about how this fits in with their lifestyle. And the automakers don't really care. They're only selling as many EVs now as they have to. So Dave, do you have any recommendations for our listeners for what the average person can do? Sure. I think the obvious is drive less, walk and bike more. But even beyond that, support higher density housing and transit. You know, Going electric is simply not enough to deal with emissions from transportation. We need to actually be rethinking our land use policies and the transportation system overall, focusing on making it sustainable, accessible, and affordable. We've invested decades of infrastructure spending into racist policies that shift the costs of our transportation system onto the poor and communities of color. And it can't take decades to right that wrong. So we need to get moving now on supporting policies that address the totality of our transportation issues. So I like the way you've described that. It's really the whole transportation system. It's not just simply buying an electric vehicle, but it's a much bigger um, more holistic problem to solve. Yeah, we need a, a both and approach. Great. Well, thanks, Dave, for uh, joining me on the podcast. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. President Biden recently announced that the U.S. has secured enough COVID-19 vaccine supplies to have everyone in the country vaccinated by late July. That's awesome news for people like me, who don't have to plan massive-scale vaccinations. For the folks making decisions about the logistics, including who gets what and when and where, this awesome news comes with a side of, how do we get this right? The first few months of vaccine rollouts have been bumpy. And the unique storage and distribution requirements of some of the ones we have available right now have led to more than a few situations where the folks who need them can't get them, and the folks who could wait somehow end up first in line. My colleague Rebecca Baim, an economist who works on food issues, is among the latter. Here's her own story of an unplanned vaccination, or as I like to call it, a happy vaccident. Thanks, Colleen. It's true. I got my first COVID-19 vaccine shot by vaccident, and I promise I won't make that pun again. Uh, my husband does not like puns. Anyway, um, my husband and I are both pretty healthy people. 
in our late 30s. We both work from home in Washington, D.C., and we don't have a lot of risk factors for contracting severe life-threatening COVID-19. Of course, we'd both rather not get it, and we were counting down the days until vaccinations became available for lower-risk people like us. That is until mid-January. We were out on a walk. We just happened to bump into our neighbors who very casually mentioned that our local Safeway was administering doses of the Moderna vaccine and that the doses would be thrown away if warm bodies didn't show up before the store closed. The idea of safe and effective, potentially life-saving vaccines going unused after all the work it took to get them developed and approved, it was clear what we should do. And so my husband and I made a beeline for Safeway and got our first shots. And don't get me wrong, I know how lucky we are, really. But even before the needle was in my arm, I got hit with guilt like a ton of bricks. I don't regret getting a dose that would have been trashed otherwise, but it's just not right or fair that we got to jump the line. Because here's a list of people who still hadn't been vaccinated when I got my first shot. My mom, my 85-year-old grandmother, my best friend from college, a doctor who's treated dozens if not hundreds of COVID-19 patients, workers in meat and poultry processing plants whose working conditions make them extremely vulnerable to COVID-19, and members of predominantly Black and Brown communities in my own city where access to vaccinations has been limited. And the reason for that disparity lies with the previous administration, whose COVID-19 task force, faced with the daunting task of distributing the vaccines, just didn't make a plan at all. They abdicated responsibility for issuing nationwide guidelines and left it up to state and local authorities who were already overwhelmed and understaffed. The resulting chaos meant that seniors were kept waiting for hours at doors in the winter, states were planning on a federal vaccine reserve that never existed, and me and many other low-risk people in Washington and elsewhere got surprise vaccines. So journeying back to the present, from the beginning, the Biden administration has promised to improve vaccine distribution. And if you're noticing that the process has become smoother in your community, maybe it's because of the following steps they're taking. So first, they established a COVID-19 response coordinator who directly reports to the president and who has been tasked with reducing racial, ethnic, and other disparities in the care, treatment, and response to COVID-19. Second, the administration issued an executive order directing the government to address health equity in COVID-19 response and recovery. So it's not just one coordinator working on the equity issue, it's all of government all the agencies that have a role in pandemic response. Third, they issued another executive order focused on keeping materials like tests and PPE and vaccines stocked up. And in the latest COVID relief legislation, the Biden administration pushed for $20 billion in additional funds for vaccine distribution. And fourth, another executive order increases data collection efforts across federal agencies to make sure that future decisions around pandemic response and relief are based on data and evidence. And if you're thinking this all sounds like stuff that should be automatically part of a federal response to a pandemic, I completely agree with you. And yet it wasn't. And while my husband and I are grateful for our good luck, we would have gladly traded it for a government that prioritizes its most vulnerable people and bases its vaccine distribution on science. Well, 
that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to help us stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Dave Cook. Our accidental vaccination story was brought to you by Rebecca Bain. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, stay safe, wear your masks, and see you next time.